2: Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com businessgrowth. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast continues to enjoy inclusion on the list of the best podcasts to listen to for business, small business, sales, leadership, uh, just a whole bunch of lists that we are truly grateful uh, to be on. This is really due to the guests who join me. These are folks who have expertise in particular areas of business, and they give of their time and their knowledge uh, so that all of you can do better things in your businesses. Today is no different. My guest today is Sean Chow. Sean serves as chief executive officer and co-founder of Catalytic. Prior to Catalytic, Sean served as the chief technology officer of Fieldglass and served as its executive vice president of professional services. Sean was responsible for product development and hosting, marketing strategy, product management, and professional services and support. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sean. Sean.
0: My pleasure, Diane. Thanks for having me. Uh,
2: Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about, um, like, how do you know when you're past the startup phase in this conversation? And I I think it's one of those sort of murky things. So if we can, 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 let's start like at the beginning, can you define uh, what a startup is?
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you're pointing out that it's a murky thing because it is for sure a murky thing. And I think there's a lot of different ways in which you can look at you know, the definition of a startup and they probably vary depending on who you're talking to. So you know, if I take a step back and just think about like what are the different types of ways, some people might say, hey, you're a startup or the way we view ourselves as a startup, um, I, I would put them in a couple of different categories. And with the caveat that I, I will say you know at field glass we we thought of ourselves as a startup in our minds we called ourselves a startup even in our 10th 11th 12th year of running field glass even after we were profitable it's just you know at some point it becomes a reflex i think more than an actual definition uh but but if i take a step back and think about like how are people thinking about a startup i think there's a couple different buckets one is you can think of a startup as fundamentally uh, the period of time where you're really looking for product market fit, uh, then followed by a series of like searches for a sustainable and, and kind of an efficient go to market strategy. But until you get that first product market fit, which people have different ways of measuring, you know, I think you're really in that early startup phase and then you move into kind of like the late stage startup as you start really refining your go to market motion. So I think the product market fit is one way to look at it. I think another way to look at it is all around that journey to profitability. So a lot of, especially in a venture funded startup or a startup initially funded by uh, its founders, you know, you're losing money at first. Uh, I mean, there are definitely startups that make money from day one, but in a lot of the startups in the startup kind of sphere that I'm in, you know, you're losing money initially. And so you're kind of a startup until you start making money and you have a sustainable way of making money. So that's another dimension. And then I think the, the last dimension, I'm sure there's actually a lot more, but the at least the last one that comes to mind is kind of a market perception dimension, which is how are clients thinking about you and what do they think about you as a startup? And And I know that when we Started Glass back in 2000. The the corporate customer, which is always the customer base I've been selling to, their view of a startup and the term startup was still kind of a negative thing. It was really associated with risk, and it was associated with this like thing that you no longer want to be as soon as possible. But over time, that's really evolved, and I think now large corporates are actually thinking of startups as still risky, but also a valuable source of innovation. And so now people aren't as in much of a rush to kind of move out of the startup phase. So you'll have people hanging on to that moniker a lot longer than you may have, you know, two two decades ago where people would like rush to no longer be a startup.
2: Thank you for uh, that. It's so interesting for me um, because I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, right, startups struggle with, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, confidence, I guess, in the marketplace. Yeah. Because right. They it's like they haven't earned their stripes yet, or they, we're not really sure they're going to stay around. So it makes people a little nervous.
0: Absolutely. I think that's, that's from the market, that last category that I mentioned, that's really the one that is psychologically, uh, you know most prominent for a corporate customer because and, and again it kind of depends on the kind of your the kind of business that you're in if you're in a consumer facing uh, type of business where things are very like trend and fad oriented and it's very hard to predict what may happen or may not happen you know that's that's a market that i'm not familiar with but when you're looking at b2b and corporate customers you know you're you're in many cases, you're asking them to put very important processes or very important functions of their business on you and entrusting you as a startup to be able to take care of that. So there's the psychological, will this company be here a year from now type of impact. Now, I think right. that's kind of uh, right. And, but I think that's kind of, you know, in some ways, the world has become so hard to predict that that's not even really the case for large companies anymore. Right. So even large companies are kind of folding and collapsing in a very short period of time. And we saw that in like 2008, where all these trusted brands, people who would never go away, suddenly disappeared you know, in the course of two months. Right, and, and so I think that combined with kind of the embracing of startups, now people are thinking about like, I have to have startups involved with my corporation, because that's the only way I'm going to get innovation. I mean, there's been a real talent drain into startups. Uh, And then so corporates are like, I have to have startups involved. So now the question is how do I de-risk as opposed to do I even work with startups?
2: Oh, that's really interesting. So because there are so many, that sounds to me, I want to make sure I'm understanding that, 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 like big corporations are realizing that that's where a lot of the innovation is because instead of going to work for companies, a lot of people are saying I have an idea and it's disruptive and I'm going to go do it myself.
0: Yeah. Or joining startups, you know, and because technology is such a key area around startups and certainly all my background, when you think about technology, if you're playing a technology role inside a corporate, a lot of times you're essentially in a back office role. Whereas if you're moving into a technology startup, you are the star of the show. I mean, you are the main reason for that company's existence. And it's not to say that corporates aren't all tech, I mean, there are certainly corporate technology companies that have that exact same value proposition, but this is where you're seeing kind of a a transformation of the importance of technology and people who are talented in technology developers specifically you know given the choice to kind of be in a back office function and you know a, a choice of being the star of the show and participate in equity kind of are increasingly choosing to go and be part of the star of the show and have that equity uh, plus you act, there's this interesting phenomenon on funding if you just look at funding of startups the capitalization that goes into startups has just increased over time and, and the perceived risk from a uh, talent perspective has diminished over time, especially in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, there's almost no risk associated with a failing startup anymore. Every engineer there can pick up their, you know, stuff from a their failed startup. And by the time they reach their car, they'll probably have four offers on the table.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and so that. <laughs> That, that risk has been largely reduced for the talent. Uh, and, and now if you're interested in access to that talent, I think you increasingly say, hey, we have to embrace these startups and we have to go talk to them. Uh, startups also have this really fascinating thing where the entire your startup is predicated on the idea that you're going to fail a lot. And so there's a really different kind of failure, risk reward profile than if you're inside of a large corporation where failure isn't part of your job. I mean, I think corporations have done a great job of embracing failure and not penalizing people, or at least most organizations have gotten much better where they're not just penalizing people for failure and allowing some risk taking behavior but it's still different than at a startup where you're, you're just, you're failing every day until you're, until that one day when you're suddenly successful. All
2: right. Okay. So it, so it doesn't sound as bad uh, to be a startup. So <laughs> Why do companies want to move past it, past that phase?
0: Well, I, I think this is when you start looking at the other definitions. So as a startup, Setting aside the market perception, you know, you're just really losing money. And now you have to start thinking about the drivers that will make a startup sustainable over that initial period. You want to make money. You want to bring a return to your investors. You yourself want to make money. And you can't do that if you're in forever startup mode. I mean, there's some weird things happening now where sometimes you do see people able to actually make a lot of personal wealth even though they're perpetually in startup mode. But I think the market is starting to self-correct. You see something like WeWork and SoftBank. And, you know, now that's starting to say, hey, it's not okay to grow at all costs and to be hemorrhaging cash, even, you know, years and years into your business. Um, So we're seeing a little self-correction there, which I think Hmm. is actually a good thing.
2: Yeah, for sure. Okay, so then, so talk to me about, um like the benefit well that's not really what i want to ask how does it, how does a company prove to its stakeholders that it's past the startup phase
0: the um you know this is I, I just actually thought of something with this question that's still tied in a little bit to the last question that you asked which is like okay. why is it valuable to be yeah. not a startup at some point and i think this is um this, this is part, I, one of my favorite books on startups is a classic book and I've read so many since then but I, I always go back to this Crossing the Chasm book uh, because I, I feel like a startup has all these value propositions but to get that real mass adoption that that sort of phase where people are just like picking you because you're the default choice that is when you are for sure not a startup like when you are the safe answer when you're the you know, the Microsoft or the IBM, which was kind of the era that I originally grew up in, you know, like no one ever gets fired at that time for picking IBM. So when you reach that kind of synonymous view of like safety, you are definitely no longer a startup. So the question now is like, what, what anchors you between those and how does your market expand as a result of each time you kind of take a step toward that safe brand? Um, and now we get to the question that you're just asking now, which was like, what are the signs that you're no longer a startup? And, um, yeah, and I think that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, and, and again, this is like, depending on kind of the view you take, there's a lot of different types of perspectives. I think certainly from uh, an investor perspective, they've categorized companies in terms of a combination of their growth function and their revenue and their profit and all these financial functions so you see these things where there's clearly a drop-off between early stage startup to growth stage to late stage and I think this late stage when you start getting the really big funds in and private equity once you start getting that kind of capital at the table I think, you know, for most purposes, you're really past the startup days. People still might have it in for one of the other categories, uh, or they just psychologically may continue to think of themselves as a startup as we did at Glass. Uh, so I think that's one. That's kind of an internal function though, so it doesn't really matter to the customers. I think from a customer perspective, they stop viewing you as a startup when they start feeling that you're going to be, it's hard to categorize, but when they start feeling like you're you're going to be there for a long time, like you're there to stay and you have staying power. And that can be just from buzz, it can be from all the capital you've raised, it can be from the number of customers you've adopted, it could be from channel partners really embracing you. So there's a lot of different vectors that you can use to give customers that perception that you're going to be there to stay. And I think the minute customers start feeling like you're here to stay, they no longer think of you as like a really early stage startup. There's probably a little sweet spot where they still think of you as a source of innovation, but the risk. And I think that's actually one of the best periods to be in because once you're past that, then you're like no longer perceived as a source of innovation. And you're really now moving into the safe choice.
2: Okay. (coughs) Excuse me. So, it's so interesting for me. I feel like the sweet spot is being seen as innovative and safe all at the same time. Like, it, that's when you've made I it. think that is.
0: Yeah, there's a little twilight moment, and I think <laughs> startups, you know, try to, like, figure out how to maximize that magical moment. Uh, and, and I could, if, if you look out there, there are some, that you can point to and you can say, yeah, that's a company that really vibes startups. I'll I'll point to one that everyone loves to use as an example. And I I think they deserve it because they really changed some buying behavior, but like Slack, you know, they're really not a startup. I mean, they're way past that stage. They're a public company. Um, they break tons of capital. They have heavy, heavy adoption. I think almost everyone would think of them as a reasonably safe choice. Um, Mm -hmm. But yet, they're still really like, they still behave like a startup and their founder still kind of goes to all the startup conferences and they are very popular among startups and they're still perceived as the source of innovation, right? So they kind of have all the appeal of a startup without as much of the risk of a company that's much earlier stage. And I think there are probably a, a number of examples that we can point to that are kind of in that sweet spot. It's a great place to be. For sure.
2: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And it feels to me like it's it's important for um, companies, startups, um, to not lose that innovative edge. You know, it's like, I feel like in the past, a company started with an idea and it got really good at it. And so it got very... Um, steady and maybe even complacent. And this is the thing we do and we do it really well. It feels like now we live in an environment where the creators are always looking for the next solution that the next interesting thing that's going to help a particular audience.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that there's at least, you know, two things that really can Contribute to that. One is that um, the I, I think it, the startups for sure, but I think business world in, in kind of broadly has really embraced the idea of um, eating your young. You know, like if if you sit there and are complacent then it's just kind of known that you're going to eventually be disrupted. So uh, this is where I think people will point to Apple as a great example of a company that was mercilessly eating their young in pursuit of growing their overall pie. And I think they did it masterfully. Um, And and they're not at all a startup. Um, But I, I think that's, for a, a psychological thing that we've all started to adopt. And I think that's been really healthy and it's helped companies to not be as stagnant as a lot of them once were. And That's not to say that all companies are like that, because I still see a lot of companies that kind of can't get out of their own way, you know? Um, but the other thing that I think has been really happening is capital has been poured into smaller companies in such massive amounts in such earlier stages that it's allowed much uh, it's kind of taken away a little bit of the organic growth that startups used to have to go through and you know it would have taken a lot longer for companies to reach the sort of critical mass that they once that they would be able to reach now because now they have access to capital and you have a very different marketing type of paradigm with uh, all the resources of the you know, internet, all the different outlets for marketing now. I mean, marketing has become, it's completely transformed in the last decade. And I think yeah. as a result, you know, between the capital, the different types of marketing and the different types of buying and the risk appetite now for large companies, it's really made it so that smaller companies can become massive very quickly. Right, yeah, which is really like, a pheno- yeah, it's it's kind of a unforeseen or it's a phenomenon that we haven't really seen much. So it's, it's really fascinating to be living in this era.
2: It really is. It's for sure. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking, I wonder if in some cases it is not, that, that it is potentially detrimental to a company to get such infusions of capital. Like, can it, can it be? Yes. Right. It, doesn't it sort, yes. Of, can it sort of become, where they can convince themselves that they are something they are not yet that they're getting the capital because someone believes that they can be something but they interpret it as we're there and they miss all those steps
0: yeah totally i mean i I think you know we work is the latest example of too much capital just kind of displacing natural market forces right so so the right amount of capital and i think silicon valley does they've you know continue to kind of hit like an interesting balance here this the tier one investors i think still continues to do it really well where they're just trying to match evidence with funding evidence with funding and that's why you see series a series b series c series you know like all the way to the because they're really matching the funding with kind of proof and evidence but then now you're starting to see these deals where sometimes like series a for 400 million dollars right or series b for half a billion dollars like what is that there's no there's no you've just kind of displaced and destroyed the idea that you should have market evidence drive your funding and and i understand the strategy there i mean the strategy there is like capital will win and so we're just going to artificially buy we're going to bypass this whole market exploration we're just going to say bam all this money will make this company by default the winner and they view themselves as kingmakers.
2: But are they really? I mean, is, is, does the evidence point to that working?
0: I I don't think so, which makes me happy as a free market guy <laughs> and, and kind of a classic entrepreneur. Right. I, I yeah. believe that entrepreneurs should kind of be forced to go through the uh, different hurdles. Um, And, and, you know, it was, it took a while for it to play out and it's not played out. But again, you're seeing a number of these really massive bets, like capital did not win and categories differ in where capital can win. I think there are some categories where you can take this sort of blitz scaling approach. Um, But I think there are categories that don't want blitz scaling. It's not a winner take all market because especially in enterprise enterprises, companies don't like having only a single vendor in a market. That's unnatural in the business world because it makes it impossible for them to have their procurement functions work and beat down the vendors, right? They need multiple vendors in every category. So like the very idea of blitzscaling and a winner take all is kind of antithetical to corporate procurement practices. Um, And and then, you know, if if you blitz scale too early, you're also kind of like, kind of, you know, that may not play out either. So you're seeing both of those, I think, push, you're you're seeing enough cases push up against both of those conditions that people are going to start thinking about, hey, does capital always win type of approach actually work? Because I I don't know that it will.
2: Yeah, me either. It feels like there's going to be another shift. and and how
0: the game is played yeah 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 i think there's been a lot of the the past few years the market the investment market and the startup world as a result have really been shaped as a series of moves to kind of account for softbank as like a singular entity that has really been playing that um, thesis out and you know we're starting to get enough evidence and proof points here that that while it may work in some categories, it's not always going to work, and so I think we are going to start seeing some categorical shifts pretty soon,
2: yeah, yeah, we need to it's interesting yeah. it's it's an interesting yeah. uh ecosystem right it's it's uh wow That's yeah
0: yeah i yeah and i've I've been living in it for like twenty years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: I'm going to take a quick sponsor break, and then I want to continue the conversation. Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are Your Oxygen Mask First by Kevin Lawrence and Breathe to Succeed by Sandy Abrams. So visit Audibletrial.com/slash businessgrowth, explore the books that are of interest to you, and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're speaking with Sean Chow about how you know you're past the startup phase of business. So Sean, we've been talking a lot about uh, corporate and and investors and and things like that. I I'd like to turn our attention to employees, and if you could share with the listeners the importance of um, employee buy-in to you know getting past that startup stage.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think the that that's another really good view of uh, startup existence and. I think a lot of it can be characterized by the percentage of internal activities that you're just making up as you go along with those that have increasingly more mature, more documented and better processes. Uh, And this is definitely a function that you see evolving over almost every startup's life where in the earliest stages, you're just completely making things up and you need a certain kind of employee to be okay with that because they're not gonna have any HR or anything. They're not gonna have, a, you know, their onboarding experience is only guaranteed to be rocky. Uh, and then, so you need a certain kind of special employee, but over time, you're gonna start bringing in more and more processes and professionals who represent different types of functions. And HR is a great one. Like almost no startup starts with an HR type of function, unless you know, there's some sort of special reason for like maybe the leaders and the founders are HR oriented people or are HR people, but a lot of times HR is just a function that's not brought in. Same with legal or finance. So there's a lot of these sort of adult functions, I like to think of them, that you don't see until later stages of a startup. And as you start seeing those emerge, and as you start bringing in real leaders, that are professionals in those spaces. They just naturally mature the processes and they naturally start saying, we can't make this stuff up all the time. We have to actually have documented processes and the risk profile become a lot more you know, pronounced. And now you have people who are really looking at it. So there's a sure journey there. I don't know what the actual break point is where you would say, yes, we are no longer a startup, but I do know that at Fieldglass, we used to always uh, isolate HR, like we, were, we, we said, because we would get pressure from the investors to bring in finance as a function pretty early, I think that makes sense. So mm-hmm. you'll definitely have finance and accounting and a controller, even while you're for sure a startup. But at some point, HR really has to start taking a more and more pronounced role, and I think HR is, in many ways, one of the best things to look at to see where you are in your journey of a startup.
2: That is so interesting. Okay, so and it makes perfect sense when you say it. I I totally get it. Um, What are the kinds of HR policies that a company should have as they're moving? I I get like at first they're not really going to have them, but as they're moving into being fully established, what are some of those things they should be paying attention to and, and firming up?
0: Well, I think um, earlier on, HR can play a pivotal role in what we would probably think of as employee experience, right? How do employees really feel empowered? How do they feel like they are being brought up to speed quickly? How do they feel like they matter? Um, And I think HR is the first run at doing that uh, conscientiously, right? I think before HR really does that conscientiously or leadership does that. Um, it's, it's very, it's kind of subconscious or it may be intentional by the, the founders and the leadership team, but it, HR is really the first thing that can kind of drive it very formally. right? like putting in the tools, putting in performance. Reviews that are appropriate for the company, looking at different types of approaches, bringing in kind of best practices, a wealth of knowledge around different strategies, giving leadership training. So there's a lot of things that they can do, and and I think early on it does tend to focus a lot around employee experience because there's this notion that I believe very, I believe is very true, which is that a strong culture will help overcome a whole bunch of other deficits that you could have at your startup. Um, But then over time, I think HR moves, and and this is a little bit unfortunate in my mind, but I, I just, I see it a lot, which is that HR moves sometimes away from, but hopefully more often, you know, in addition to the risk mitigation side of HR starts showing up. And that's when you start getting policies. And first it'll be customer driven. So customers will say, hey, you can't have any, Of your employees show up on site unless they've gone through this, this, and this, right? And then so HR will put in a policy in place that says, hey, here's an HR policy we have about this, this, and this to accommodate the customer's needs. And that's where you first start getting kind of that risk mitigation side of HR running. And that just continues to grow because at some point the HR function is actually thinking about how do we make sure that employees, if they do leave because you are going to have turnover. And how how are we protecting the company, uh, and how are we making sure that we're actually you know being responsible about the companies, uh, the 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 I guess you know being sued by former employees and and like that kind of risk function of HR emerges. So hmm. ideally, you have an HR organization that is still doing both employee experience and risk mitigation. Unfortunately, sometimes you just kind of see HR evolve more into risk mitigation and employee experiences a little bit lost. And maybe that's when you feel like you are, again, for sure, outside of startup land.
2: <laughs> and that's a warning sign, right? <laughs> that's one of a warning signs but you're right. You've sort of let go of something that is critically important to your future success.
0: Yeah, 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 for sure.
2: <laughs> so... Does rebranding play a role? Like, do, do companies get to a point where they're heading from startup to um, established where they say, okay, now we need to rebrand ourselves?
0: I think so. I, I think there's a, um, this is that positioning, the, the customer-facing view of the perception of a startup. So I think every company... Is always thinking about how they're being perceived by the market and you know you definitely want to be signaling to customers uh, when you are growing and when you are evolving and uh, you might do it through a series of things but every so often i i think every company kind of does a let's gather all of our things and do a big push like if you look at catalytic we went through a big branding repush, which included everything from a new logo to new color palette to a new website and a whole bunch of materials that were largely driven off of a combination of our Series B and a growing number of customers, as well as kind of a big step function in our product. So those three things, which we signaled previous Culminated in, hey, let's just do this big rebranding. And I think those type of things are important for a company to. They're they're like a formal uh, marking or guideposts that a company wants to be able to cross, and it helps to create that confidence in the customers. And and of course, I think every startup is trying to signal that they're this perfect combination of fast innovation and you know some some degree of safety.
2: I, I, I know it sounds know like
0: that. it. it, <laughs> it, it, it you, everyone's trying to figure out how do we maximize this kind of, you know, union area. Um, but yeah. I think that's true. I think that's that's that really is the thing that uh, startups love. And and as as a, you know, uh, multiple time I guess uh, entrepreneur as well as being someone who is involved a lot in startups, there is this there's there's a magic to finding that spot that is irresistible and then there's a real special feeling while you're in that spot that is you know not reproducible almost anywhere else either in an early stage startup or in a large company even large innovative companies or you know really well capitalized but still very much a startup and high risk
2: Hmm, that's interesting yeah. so and 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 so the, the, you said something that was so interesting to me that there were things like when you were talking about your rebranding that there were um, like situations that feel like they collided where you said, okay, you know, you saw, saw the mile markers and it was okay. Now is the time to put that marker down that, that there's a shift that, that something has changed, but it was those three areas that sort of came together. To tell you, we're ready.
0: Yes, yes, and, and a lot of it, they're they're very synergistic. So, using to take that mile marker analogy a little bit further, it's like you pass mile marker 14, then you pass mile marker 15, and then you pass mile marker 16, and then all of a sudden you see the exit sign, and you're like, okay, this is you know an exit sign. It's different somehow special than just these mile markers, um, or you see that welcome to you know the state of Montana sign. And that's somehow different than the mile markers, but yet they're built on the fact that you cross these mile markers. Um, and I don't think there's a magic to uh, the, or there's not a prescription to the right mile markers. I think it's kind of a, a, a bit of a, uh, you know, an art there. You're just trying to pick the right combination of things, depending on where you are as a startup. For us, it's catalytic, where we are still pretty early stage. You know, customer acquisition, funding, uh, product, you know, these are kind of the the signals that are important for us to convey to um, not just our current customers to help them reinforce the decision that they made and gain more adoption and traction within their companies, but also to prospective customers that, hey, we're at a, you know, we are now at this point and should be on your radar and in, in your consideration set. You know, that's, that's really, I think, what a lot of these rebranding initiatives are, um, even for uh, employees and being able to hire new people. We're, we're signaling to the in the potential employee base that we're now at a slightly different point, and if you weren't willing to talk to us a year ago, you should be willing to talk to us now if, you know, these things uh, matter to you. And of course, there are employees as well as prospective customers that need to see the next exit sign or the next, you know, like two exit right. signs down and they're still not comfortable at where you're currently at. And that's okay. But for startup, you're, you're, well, a naturally funded startup, you <laughs> know, you're, you're building a little and acquiring customers a little, building a little, acquiring customers a little, you know?
2: Yeah, right. Right. It's a process. This is so right. interesting. I, I really appreciate the information. It, it, it's, um, it's, interesting for me when I get this very different picture in my head of uh, what I, what we're talking about than when I started the conversation. So I, I so appreciate that. I think this is really valuable for those listeners who might be in that um, middle, you know, the sort of that transitional phase and not realizing that they are and ones that are heading that, that way as well. So thank you so much for joining me and sharing
0: this information well it's been a lot of fun I do appreciate you having me on it's it's a unique journey <laughs> and yeah. if people can <laughs> be warned forewarned a little bit I think it'll just help take a, uh, it will help them anticipate that rocky roller coaster ride a little bit better I mean, no, oh, nothing so can really great. prepare you for it <laughs> no no
2: but every little bit else right
0: will you yeah, tell the listeners sure. how they
2: can find you and what you've got going on over there at catalytic
0: Absolutely. So the best way to find out more about us is at our website, catalytic.com. That's C-A-T-A-L-Y-T-I-C.com. And of course you can find us on Twitter at Catalytic or LinkedIn. Um, But we look forward to hearing from all of your listeners. If they have any questions about the world of automation, business process automation, which is what Catalytic does, or if they have any questions around startups, feel free to, reach out to me. I love talking about them. Again, something I've been a part of for, you know, my entire career basically. And it's incredibly rewarding, even though it's also incredibly stressful at times.
2: So so. So true. That's so great. Thank you so much. And I always like to thank the listeners. You guys are, are what we are here for. And so, um, I'm confident that you got some real value out of today's conversation. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Audible.com. To get a free trial of Audible.com as well as a free audiobook, please go to Audibletrial.com/slash businessgrowth to sign up. As always, continue to prosper and be curious, and until we meet again, on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth. Goodbye and good day. Don't you
0: go